Hello and welcome to this edition of Biting Talk with Life Kitchens presented by me, William Sitwell, Telegraph restaurant critic and food writer. Biting Talk is Britain's liveliest food and drink podcast and I'm so happy you're joining me. Biting Talk comes to you in association with Life Kitchens, creating kitchens to be lived in that are planned around your life and the way you live it. And by the way, there's still time. If you put down a deposit on a new kitchen before December the 18th, you'll find a very large Fortnum and Mason hamper blocking your front door before you can say, does a downdraft countertop extractor fan really work? On this episode, we meet the wonderful Gennaro Contaldo, this much-loved Italian chef, and he's the man who taught a young Jamie Oliver everything there is to know about Italian cooking, has the greatest title that I know. He's not a baronet or a lord or an earl. No, much better, he's been appointed ambassador of Parmigiano Reggiano. I'll be talking to Gennaro about his life, his love of life, and his love of Parmesan. Also on the show is Laura Riches. Her new brand of boxed wine is called Lalo. Yes, it's wine in a box, but not as we know it. I'll be exploring the new technologies that are helping to improve the reputation of this often maligned concept and wrongly maligned in my view. And looking at Lalo, a very pretty box with some extremely good juice inside it. We'll also meet an aficionado of British cheese. That's Francis Gimlet. No one has tasted more cheese made within our shores than this man. And as he publishes his latest guide, I'll be finding out what makes British cheese special and if there's an alternative to my and Gennaro's beloved Parmesan. Perish the thought, surely. Then we chat with Justine Murphy. Now, this private chef and cookbook author is the purveyor of some mean brownies, and I know I've tasted them. She also has a rather tough and moving story. Please, please stay tuned for that. Finally, as ever, we dock at the house of Haydari, where this week Biting Talk mixologist Farhad Haydari has something rather cheeky for the weekend. But first, we welcome to the show wine entrepreneur Laura Riches. Laura, welcome to Biting Talk. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, let's first of all talk about the whole area of boxed wine. Why do you think it's had a bad rap? Because I think it's unfair, generally speaking, because I've had some really good wines that, that come in boxes over the years, but people are still a bit tentative, which I assume is why you reckon there's a gap in the market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, historically, I think there has been um, a quality issue with boxed wine. So the technology um, in the packaging just wasn't really good enough for great winemakers to think, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to put my wine in there. I'm going to present my wine to the world in that format. Um, but that's changed a lot. I mean, over the years, um, the tech's improved, the way that we transport wine has improved. Um, and it really means that now we can proudly put wine into boxes that we know will be great quality. We know will taste delicious for like six weeks from opening. So, so it really is a, a no brainer. But of course, we all have that that uh, memory and that stigma associated with it of, of student plonk. And, and that's hard to break, actually. You know, changing people's perceptions can be extremely difficult. So let's talk about the actual bag, because, of course, there's a box and there's a bag within the box, and there's always been a bag within a box. Has the bag technology changed? Um, and, and is there genuinely a difference? Could you tell the difference in flavour? Does, does glass affect wine in a way that, let's say, a plastic, uh, you know, non-organic, let's say, derived material 
would would affect the wine or not yeah i mean i think first of all there's there's some important exceptions to acknowledge and and that's sparkling wine obviously where the the fermentation happens in bottle um so that's not appropriate in box and then similarly the sorts of wines that you would i don't know lay down in your cellar um that would age with time box isn't right for those types of wines and and that's okay because the, the majority of wines are not laid down in cellars they're, they're drunk straight away so so then you know in terms of the of the quality itself my understanding is that it right back when when boxed wines were perhaps there in their heyday of cheap plonk um aluminium was used to um keep the wine fresh so this obviously makes sense in a in a science lab where everything is very controlled but real life isn't like that and if it's you know sitting on the shelves and then in your trolley and then um, in your car on the way home, it's going to get bashed around and therefore these tiny cracks would appear and, and the wine itself would oxidise very quickly. Um, these days they use instead this, this super smart, is a, a complex polymer, um, which means that that kind of knocking around and jostling doesn't cause um, cracks in the, in the um, protective coating, if you like, that the bag provides. And therefore the wine itself is much safer, much more stable, and therefore the quality can, can be much more consistent and controlled. Okay. So it's worth putting better quality juice into the bag because whatever happens to the bag, the bag won't affect or taint that wine. Absolutely. And I mean, I think this is manifest in the fact that, that winemakers are now willing to put their wine into box. I, I think, you know, it's easy to forget that winemakers are, are extremely talented you know, artists and, and they, they want to put their best foot forward. And, and now with the, the improvements in technology, winemakers are simply willing to do that in a way that they weren't before. Yes. So the, time, the timing's right in terms of a, from a technology perspective. And as you say, however much some of us might like our wines and like to invest in wines. Most of the wines that are bought in supermarkets or online or in off-licenses are consumed within a matter of days. They are wines for drinking immediately. So the box wine comes in at that, at that, that part of the market. Um, it's hugely competitive, of course. Um, and uh, I mean, I know a little bit about this because I have a little wine store myself. But where do you think you can get an edge? Because you're, you know, big supermarkets... They all have what they would say is good quality boxed wine. You're plunging into this business or you're dipping a toe in this, this ocean of wine. Um, where, apart from the fact that, you know, obviously you've got very attractive boxing, uh, is that where you have an edge or is there, is there another area where you think you can kind of exploit what you see as a gap in the market? Yeah, so I think I think there's there's three parts to it. So the first you um, alluded to, which was the the wine itself, and you know we're not trying to compete with um, entry level supermarket wines. We're we're really choosing premium wines. So I, by which I mean a sort of ten to fifteen pounds a bottle bracket from independent winemakers, um, which you wouldn't usually see, you wouldn't see in a box in a, in a supermarket. So it's a slightly, slightly more premium product. Um, then as you rightly described the, the packaging, it's for us, it's not just about creating a beautiful box, although I, I hope that that's how people see them, but it's, it's really about telling the, the story of the winemaker through the design. So, um, on our first wine, our Tempranillo, we've got, 
um, kind of hidden messages, the story of the winemaker, our story hidden within the the images that you see. And and I I love that. I think sharing a wine is about sharing stories. And and then I, I suppose the third element is that by selling direct to consumer and selling via our own website, um, we have so much more opportunity to to talk to people. And and we really want to get our customers involved in in the journey with us. Everything from from choosing the wines and helping us to determine the design. So again, it's a kind of experience that you you just wouldn't have in a in a supermarket. And I think the two things can coexist, you know, very easily side by yeah. side. Okay. Now let's talk about some of the social niceties, maybe the pitfalls of box wine, because of course the beauty of a box wine is that, well, you don't have to open an entire bottle, you can just have a glass. But of course, the downside of that is you can just keep glugging as if you're just going straight from the steel tank. Um, where do you do you think that you need to, you know, be quite careful? Do you have to hold back? Is this just a permanent tap of wine, or actually, do you think this can help you drink more sensibly because it means that you don't have to finish the bottle; you can just have a simple glass? Well, I mean, I think I think that the, the feedback so far from customers is that. Um, very few people have tested the claim of um, stays fresh for six weeks from opening, um, which we're, we're taking as a compliment. But, you know, I, I understand your your concern. I, I, I suppose one of the things we want to mitigate against is that, you know, we've all been there. It's a Tuesday night and you fancy a glass of wine, but you have to open a bottle because you don't really have a choice. And inevitably that bottle goes very quickly. Um, and actually or i mean or frankly gets gets poured away so with with our boxes we're really hoping that people can um enjoy a large glass on a tuesday evening um and feel good about the wine they're drinking can i guarantee that that you'll be able to to stop after the one glass well you know depend depends on the person maybe okay so let's talk logistics here how many bottles per box how many liters yeah, so it's each box is 2.25 litres, which is three bottles. Um, and they're actually amazingly compact. So that's been a, a bit of feedback we've had so far is people can't believe this tiny box is, is three bottles. So nuts and bolts, your first Tempranillo box wine costs how much? 34.99. 34.99 for three bottles in a box. You can drink it all in one go or it can last you for six weeks. Well, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> and um, uh, goes well with curry, I can tell you personally. Oh, but I think also a little bit of roast pork uh, and some apple crumble. Um, oh, fun. You know, sounds so, dreamy. So there you go. Um, Laura Riches from Lalo, thank you so much for coming on Bison Talk. If people want to find more about you, I assume you're on the, you're, your Instagram handle is uh, at Lalo. At drinklalo, and then we're drinklalo.com. Laura Riches, thank you so much for coming on Bison Talk. Thanks so much. Well, my next guest has a new cookbook out, Justine Murphy. It's her book, 160 Refined Sugar-Free Recipes for Everyday Eating in Your Busy Life. And in her busy life, she's spared some moments for Biting Talk listeners. Justine, welcome. Hi, William. Thank you for having me. This is the most beautifully sunny, glorious, refreshing book of joy i have to tell you um i've loved looking through it and um i will admit because i don't mind being bribed but um as we were discussing and pl plotting your appearance on biting talk i managed to uh, eke some pretty good 
brown is out of you, which were dispatched. And um, I made were, them myself. And made... I, I did. I did. And they were plant based and refined sugar free. And, and I bet you didn't even realise they weren't crammed with loads of butter and sugar and eggs. Cause then... I have to tell you, I didn't. It didn't uh, affect my palate. They were they were very Moorish and people passing through the house just grabbed them and there were lots of them and they came in a very nice box. So I hope that there'll be uh, my muy bueno deliveries of, of brownies up and down the country. Maybe you're diversifying. <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. Other things to focus on first. Now, listen, before we talk a bit about um, the story leading up to this to this book, let's just talk about this sugar-free issue because, of course, sugar has this, this terrible rap. Um, it's one of the, the kind of bad boys of the food world, good sugars, bad sugars, refined sugars. Just tell us a little bit about what is a good sugar, what is a bad sugar, what, what we should be aware of when we're looking at cooking ourselves, and, and how your book can help in that. Just just guide us through this tricky area of the word refined and sugar-free. I just think, for me, it's the taking away, it's about natural sugars. Um, taking away the processed sugars, that's the stuff that's really bad for us. I mean, I'm a mummy. This is where it all changed for me, um, kind of with my own experience with food, what I was putting in my own children's bodies, and then my own bodies, and then with my deli feeding other people, I felt I had a moral responsibility for health and for people's health. Um, so I started to investigate uh, more into it. And wow, you know, it really opened my eyes to just how bad processed sugar is for you. So started to make the adjustments and the changes because for me it was important. I didn't want to lose the taste. If I have something sweet, I have a sweet tooth, um, but I don't want something, you know, I want something that's going to satisfy those cravings. But what started to happen is I started to swap out the uh, refined sugar for natural sugars, things like pure maple syrup and really good quality coconut sugar. Not only did it, using it apples for apples, did it taste the same in terms of the finished result, but I noticed that A, it satisfied the sweet cravings, B, it changed my palate and the palate of my children, so, that, so much so that if and when we do have something, you know, if we're eating out and we have a pudding and obviously it's got caster sugar in it or whatever, um, we notice the difference immensely because our palate has become, we've always retrained our palates. Um, and we're talking everyday eating, you know, um, is not using kind of processed sugar. And so then you start to, whatever you do start eating, the ingredients just taste so much better. You really taste, you know, the natural sweetness in ingredients, even savory ingredients almost, because your your palate is picking up. Your taste buds have been retrained, I'd say. Um, the, the book is arresting for its content uh, in terms of its recipes. There's a phenomenal list of pantry and equipment. I mean, I, I, when I ask someone their store cupboard staples, um, I've never, never seen a list like yours. So all I can say is, if you want to know what Justine Murphy says you should put in your pantry. There's no, there's no option as to, uh, but, but buy this book. Now, another reason that people should buy this book is your introduction, because it's extraordinary. I have to say that I don't think I've been sort of stopped as I have progressed through this book um, for, for a long time. So many people in the food world, their stories are all about you know, clutching at their mother's apron strings and the food that they that they ate and at lunch they you know breakfast they talked about lunch at lunch they talked about tea and tea supper and so on and their childhood was where they got their you know they got their taste for food. Your story is very very different, and you say very frankly that this you know that 
that your past was a store was a was a very dark period. Um, just tell me a bit about this because you do write about it in your book. You had a fairly brutal upbringing. Your parents were violent towards each other, towards you. Um, it's a it's a very striking and unusual story to read in a cookbook. But will you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's 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 an interesting story to be able to share because it's you know the very thing that was uh, or I guess the very people it was good food and good people is where I am now and that's been the heart of what my muy bueno is all about what the cookbook's all about and the striving to chase my happiness and create an amazing life for myself um, after such an upbringing and a childhood and finally kind of uh, the things that happened to me in my childhood kind of followed me into my uh, 20s and you know very isolated very much in the hands of the wrong people for a very long time until I kind of said enough enough I'm gonna go and uh, uh, I want to chase my happiness by that time I'd kind of developed eating disorders off the back of the things that had happened to me and food played a really negative part in my life and only when I started to change my life, chase my happiness, choose who I allowed into my life to protect myself and to make my own world, I guess, um, that everything started to really change. And then the very things that started to heal me and uh, and my happiness started to grow and, uh, you know, were, were the very good people coming into my life. And from that good food and the uh, ignited the passion for food and cooking and the joy it gives people, the joy it was giving me and how very um, day and night it was from what I'd experienced in my childhood and more. Right. Yes. You write that you were nine when your father left. And um, some people might have thought as they read through this, well, we're going to get some relief from this, but far from it, because you say actually that your mother's behavior became more disturbing. And then the years that followed were were deeply unhappy and you really felt you needed to escape. Writing about this and thinking about this, w was this very, very hard for you? Was it cathartic? Um, did you have any feelings of guilt for your other members of your family or cousins who might be embarrassed about what you were writing? Um, I think definitely it was, you know, kind of felt like a healing process, sharing about it, talking about it, um, you know, talking about that time there was it wasn't you know it was escape in every part of the world uh word you know I was kind of locked in a room for a lot of my childhood uh it was a pretty crazy time um and so escaping was the first escape that I had throughout many kind of stages of my life and cycles uh but yeah no there you know not really been many other family members around uh, so I've always kind of been on my own two feet um, and moving forward and having to pick up and move forward uh, every single time and come out the other side and brush myself off and get back up again and keep, you know, keep having that kind of fighting spirit and determination no matter what, you know. Um, and, and have you lost all contact with your parents? Uh, uh, yeah, no, I've not heard from them for a very, very, very long time. Yeah, it's been a, yeah, yeah they've and, long, and when, long gone. And given what you went through, can you spot someone who's having difficulty just by looking their eye or, or a, a feeling has that ever happened to you i think um 
I wouldn't say that. I think we're all very good at hiding on the outside. You know, again, I'm I'm always been this very bubbly, happy person, uh, despite even being back at school and things going on behind closed doors as a child. On the outside, when I went to school, it was an escape in itself, again, just to be happy and carefree and uh, hiding what was going on behind the surface. And I think that was a big part of, again, sharing my story, that if it even helps one person and resonates with them and gives them some confidence to overcome different situations or experiences they've gone through in their life and know that you can keep getting up, you can keep brushing yourself off, you can find your happiness. There's always a way. Um, And that's what I hope to inspire by sharing my story the way I have. Well, your book is a revelation uh, for that and also for your overnight oats for one. Which, which, and I love the fact you've got lots of recipes for one. And I think that's fantastic because uh, not everyone wants overnight uh, oats. If you're on your own, you can have them. But if you're just the only one in the family, there's the recipe. But listen, Justine Murphy, it's been wonderful to chat with you. Uh, Your book, The My Moi Beno Cookbook, is out now. And uh, thank you so much for coming on Biting Talk. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, if you love British cheese, you're going to absolutely adore my next guests. This man lives a life surrounded by cheese. He's tasted more cheese than I think (laughs) could be humanly possible. But he's Francis Gimlet and his new book, Gimlet's Guide to the Best of British Cheeses, is out shortly. Francis, welcome to Biting Talk. Thank you, William. Um, A pleasure to be here. Now, listen, British cheese. Um, We keep reading. In fact, I, I keep writing now and again about the the renaissance, the resurgence of of British cheese. Um, is it actually happening or is it just is it just that we're discover or is it just that we're discovering it and it was always there bubbling under the surface? Because you went off on your mission, you discovered so many, and I can't believe they've just been literally invented in the last five or ten years. No, they have been there, but uh, it's an interesting question that you pose because we we do hear all of the time that, um, that there is this resurgence, and it's kind of following on the back of all of artisan food from gins to to, to craft ale and, and all the rest of it. Um, but I think the reality is, whilst we are in a better place and it is happening, um, there there are some real opportunities to to, to be found, um, and the industry, uh, I suppose, it's coming from a low starting point. Um, there are a lot of cheeses out there when you, know, you look at them as an individual. But in the UK, we have about 300 cheesemakers, which sounds like a lot. But um, in France, there are uh, whether well, the government statistics say anything from two, two and a half thousand and others say, well, maybe up to five. If you're counting somebody simply milking a cow or two and selling a bit of cheese at the market. So uh, we've got some way to go there. So in terms of some of our yeah, European neighbours, we're still we're still lagging, uh, lagging behind. What is it that if you could define British cheese in one large block differentiates ourselves, our cheeses from from, let's say, continental cheeses or cheeses anywhere else? Is there a defining characteristic of British cheese? There is. There is. There are a number of defining characteristics in the same way that you've got defining characteristics between regions in, in say, France or, or Italy. Uh, it's all based on uh, climate, uh, topography, breeds, 
uh, and and the tradition and the history. And we have some wonderful uh, territorials, they call them, all, all cheeses that have evolved in uh, over time and in a place. But unfortunately, the Second World War cut has sort of swathed through those, or the, through farm production uh, of those. And the names were, I suppose, carried on into the commercial uh, world. And, and so Red Leicesters and Cheshires and Caffillies, we, we see those uh, in, in the mass markets. We see the names, but they are just a shadow of, of the sort of cheeses that um, they would have been prior to the war. And they, they would have been vastly different then. There are some great proponents of those um, uh, of those cheeses out there at the moment, um, but they are still in, in small volume. Yes. Now, you set off to write this book. Um, you went off in your Land Rover because it would save you the cost of accommodation. And uh, you've had a, you had a you've had a fascinating and diverse past. You were a sommelier, a wine broker, a big events organizer. So off you went, traveling around the country in your Land Rover, kipping in there and trying all these all these uh, different cheeses. Are there cheeses that 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 you're surprised that aren't made in this country that are made in Europe, for example? And you're thinking, why isn't anyone doing that? Um. I, I'm not so sure. I think we have examples of, of most European styles of cheese being made from uh, Gruyere styles in, in Borough, uh, or in, in Bermondsey rather, and being sold in Borough Market, Capacasing uh, dairy. Um, there are a lot of great Camembert styles, Tunworth, for instance, Hampshire Cheese Company. Um, there, there are great examples. But I, I think that we, we um, tend to, we, we have a, a very wide range of styles, which is why we hear on often that um uh, that we have more types of cheese than France, and, and that's often translated to more cheeses than France or more cheesemakers, neither of which is, is correct. We probably experiment more, and, and there are fewer uh, controls, you could call them, or regulations. There, are, there aren't the same Appalachian controlling regulations on our cheeses, so we can experiment a little more. But um, I, I would say there's a little bit of everything there, but you have to look yeah. for it. And, um, and are our cheesemakers an overwhelmingly friendly a nice bunch or did you sometimes turn up in your Land Rover knock on the door of their dairy and and, and, and would to, to a person they're delightful uh, no they were wonderful they were very welcoming I did I did sort of contact them and they knew I was coming but uh, but no I mean, many of them offered me sort of accommodation and uh, and and plenty of obviously cheese and, and food uh, and they're absolutely lovely and, and they're all in the nicest of locations yes, too yes now when you go uh, to your local supermarket be it Aldi or be it Waitrose, and you walk along the cheese aisle, do you weep um, at the sight um, of a lack of British cheeses? Or do you, do you, you know, how do you feel when you see Dairy Lee? How do you feel when you see Cathedral Cheddar? Tell it, tell me. Well, it, 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 we we need all these are staples, and it's the same way that um, yeah, uh, something like um, uh, Cathedral City or other. It's it's a great product, but it, it's there for you know putting on your your beans on toast or or something along those lines. And, and I I love that. Yeah, we, we have commodity cheese, um, but I'm not going to sit there writing a tasting note around it because it doesn't have the same diversity as as, a, as another uh, cheese. But yeah, I, I, we did um, a little. We we looked at um, Pam, my wife. She she did a little research and looked into. Um, uh, uh, supermarket cheeses and and four fifths or over four fifths of the and I'll say artisan in in, in inverted commas uh, cheeses on our supermarket shelves are are imported and I think that's a great shame and so it, it, awareness needs to change and, and awareness that we we have these producers and 
in, in tandem with that, the number of producers needs to increase. We need to go from 300 to maybe 1,000. I think we could do it as a, as a, a, a country in the next 10 years. Okay. Now, Francis, be completely honest with me. When someone says two words to you, vegan cheese, what do you say back to them? What's your response? <laughs> cashew nuts or, or other it's a different product they're delicious products i mean the, the word cheese is is uh, i suppose applied to it because it, it is there to, to to replicate it's a different product um and it, it, it has its place absolutely i mean my daughter's vegan and she she turned vegan the, the moment that, that pam and i released our cheese events <laughs> for five or six years ago she, she says it was coincidence <laughs> but, uh, but do you yeah. think as a as a great cheese as an affineur or whatever you call yourselves do you do you, do you wish that um, a product such as vegan cheese had a different name or can you stomach it? No, no, life, life you know, it, it, it's, I, I think that it, it, there needs to be a, a catch-all. And if, if you ha are vegan, you, you want to have these staples. I mean, I, I think vegan bacon is probably pushing the boat out a bit, but uh, but no, vegan cheese is, is, is okay. It's just a different thing. We, we do tastings, my wife and I, we, 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 we regularly ask for uh, a vegan alternative. And if you're vegan, then, then you know, why not? But they, they're getting better. Um, but they are rather confected, is, is, is the way. Okay. And, and um, we've got Gennaro Cantaldo on the show this week. And, uh, of course, he's the ambassador for Parmigiano, Reggiano. Indeed. Is there a British equivalent? <laughs> do you have Parmesan in your fridge, Francis Gimblet? Oh, do I? No. Um, and, and only because there are so many cheeses that I, I encounter, I tend to, uh, to, to stick with what we, we've come across. I mean, uh, I, I don't think there's anything... Um, oh gosh, I'm going to get in trouble here. That I've tasted that, that quite matches um, uh, palm, traditional Parmigiano Reggiano. But uh, um, anyway, I, I may be shot down in flames. And so. is there ever a day that uh, you can pass without eating cheese? Um, only because it's I surrounded I, I, I long time maybe four years ago I don't know I, I was probably probably a, a very hungover day or something when I didn't eat at all four but, years uh, ago no. there was a day where Francis Gimlet didn't eat cheese there we go well listen your book Gimlet's Guide to the Best of British Cheeses is out uh, out shortly I believe uh, it's out now as an ebook. Um, and uh, it's um, uh, and we'll be bringing out a, a hard copy uh, or a paperback rather in the, in the new year. Lovely. Well, look, it's been wonderful to chat with you. Thanks for being on Biting Talk. And with you, Rune. A pleasure. Well, my next guest on Biting Talk came over to the United Kingdom in the 1970s. He was born in Italy and um, he got a job at some point with uh, the great Antonio Carluccio in Neal Street. Um, and uh, that formed a fantastic friendship. They went on to make huge amounts of TV shows together. It was at Neal Street where he met the wonderful Jamie Oliver. And Gennaro Cantaldo, who is my next guest, is the author of some 12 books. Um, he has too many TV shows to count. Uh, but his latest thing, which I'm most excited about, is that he has, I think, one of the greatest titles in the world, which is an ambassador for Parmigiano Reggiano. And we're going to talk about Gennaro's life. We're going to talk about Parmesan. But Gennaro, you're very welcome to Biting Talk. Hi, William. Thank you very much. That was really nice to hear all this. Then I've done all this. Oh, yeah, probably I have. <laughs> but let's not forget one thing. Before anything, I am a cook. And do you know what cook could do? Make people very happy through the cooking. Well, that that is. And your the force of personality, your smile... It's something that people always remember you for, the energy. And 
you do love to make people happy. And I think that's one of your great achievements, let's face it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That is good. Yes. Now tell us, what was it like coming into coming to London, coming to the UK in the 1970s? Why did you leave Italy in the first place? Well, I come from a small village in Italy, which is called Minori, smacked on in the middle of Amalfi Coast. You know, I was born 30 metres by the sea, where the sea was my uh, swimming pool, uh, my back garden uh, was the mansion, and, uh, and the place where to learn was my village. Uh, when I came to London, I, you know, come from a small place, I was almost lost uh, because everything was so different. Uh, also, it was very hard to find the originality of Italian food. And uh, for a couple of years, I didn't know what actually wanted to do it. But at the same time, I needed a permit if I was going to stay in England, which I managed to have that permit. And, uh, and then after a little while, uh, I fell in love for uh, London. And so I went back and then I coming back. Now, one of your first jobs, I mean, you were, you were going, you thought you might work in the antiques trade, didn't you? Uh, yes. Well, I, I was cooking, but I got not fed up. Uh, I wanted to see something different. Uh, when, I, when I was in my hometown in Minori, there used to be a friend of mine, uh, which he was, called, he was called Carmen, he passed away. He was still in Antigua and I learned so much. You know, I used, I, used, I used to make a little bit of money. So, and I can see that in England, especially London, so much stuff was chucked away, thrown away, where uh, if I brought them those in Italy, you know, I would have made a nice profit. And I did, I done it. And it works. Now, I mentioned at the, at the top of the, uh, our chat about your association with the wonderful, the late, uh, great Antonio Colluccio, who we who we miss enormously. Um, you worked for him at Neal Street. It's where you met Jamie Oliver. It's where you guided Jamie Oliver and gave him some early lessons in cooking. How did you meet Antonio? Did you knock on his door and, and ask for a job? Or did you meet in uh, at a friend's house? How did you first come across him? Because it then was the beginning of a very long association with the great man, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, I missed him quite a lot. I do miss him especially this time of the year when it's the mushroom season and we used to go mushroom picking together uh, and do miss him. But let me tell her, I met Antonio. Antonio came in England and he married Priscilla Conneran, the, 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 the sister of Terence, the late Terence Conneran. And he had the same passions of me, collecting mushrooms. And one day, out of the blue, I was uh, reading this magazine, this this figure of Antonio holding these massive mushrooms in his hands, and he also was serving in a restaurant. So I find out that the restaurant was in New Street, and the restaurant's called New Street. So I pick up a massive basket of mushrooms, which I collected, and I brought it to him as a present, and he loved it so much. Uh, I said, thank you. He said to me, well, if you have some more, bring them along and I'll buy off you. I said, no, you can have it, but I, I don't sell it. And from there, you know, he invited me for, for dinner and we start to talk. And uh, I was telling him what I was doing. He said, uh, if I like to have a job with him. I was a little bit confusing, uh, but in the end, it took him about two, three months and accept the, that, that job. Uh, so I was in the kitchen. 
I was an assistant then, and then I was the chef. Uh, and then slowly, 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 you know, we really, we, we become a friend more than a boss as somebody worked with him. Do you do? And um, of course, it was, I mentioned J- Jamie Oliver, and you've obviously been, you've talked about this many times in the past. Do you remember the first time you saw him in that kitchen? Let me tell you what's happened. One morning, about seven o'clock in the morning, knocked on the door. I was already there by three o'clock. And he said, uh, I said, I opened the door and I looked at him. I saw this young boy. I said, yes. I said, uh, I'm looking for a job. I usually chuck them away, send them away. Everybody comes there early in the morning, special the supply. So I, I don't know why I said, sure, come in. I said, um, did you want a coffee? And then he set the cappuccino. Then I was thinking, this is too young to drink your cappuccino. And I, for wanted a school experience. So I said, okay, come down. I don't know why. He's always stuck in my mind why. Me and Jamie, we ask always this, this why you took me. Uh, I don't know. And then uh, I said, what well, you can do? I said, I can do everything. So off we go. I said, okay. It was about nine o'clock. I said, yeah, you okay? And so I said, go upstairs. There's a secretary, which comes 10 o'clock. Tell her then you wanted to work here. And I said, yes. So the secretary come down, rush it down. He said to me, Gennaro, I said, are you all right? I said, yes. What? And it said, you can't really, I said, take it up, boy, uh, for work. I said, why? I said, well, you know, you usually... He said, when somebody comes to ask for a job, you usually have them one day and then you say, no, but what is he, your son? I said, yes. Anyway, he, he was the right age and he stayed with me. And, uh, you know, I had so much experience. Looked at him and I said, with all this, so much experience, I have to give it to somebody. I said to him, now, from now on, you stay under my wing and let me show you whatever I learned in all this year. I want to pass it to you. The boy took so much of his art, but don't forget he was already full of talent. He was already somebody who's cooking because he was with his mum and dad in a restaurant in Essex. And it was good that since then, you know, become a friendship and a fathership. So he called me his London dad. Yeah, it's a lovely story. That and of course you've appeared on so many of his TV shows. You've worked you've worked together. Now listen, I mentioned at the top of the show that you are now an ambassador for Parmigiano Reggiano. Um, tell me about this trip you recently did. You went to Reggio Emilia to trace the origins of the cheese because Parmesan is something that I would say most of us have now in our in our fridges. Um, it's it's ubiquitous, as almost as ubiquitous as milk, I would say, uh, amongst most people who like to eat. Um, tell us a bit about Parmesan. We, you know, it is so important on pasta. It's the, it is the icing on the cake. But how is this stuff, how is it made? Because it's quite a simple uh, collection of ingredients, but it's quite a sophisticated story. Tell us a bit about it. It's good to them. Yes, I had a fantastic trip when I went to Italy. Also, I learned so much, unbelievable. I thought I knew it. But when there, I learned more, which it was so simple. You know, we go back to the Parmigiano Reggiano. It's almost a thousand years old, you know. Uh, I believe uh, the first, uh, the, the, the friars uh, in a monastery used to make it. Don't forget that they used to have one or two cows. But the, the natural of Parmigiano Reggiano is really good because it's three ingredients, three. 
but I put another extra to myself. The ingredient is the milk, the rennets, and the salt. So it's 100% natural, but the other two extra ingredients is the thyme and the love. And uh, I never changed for nearly a thousand years old. So I can imagine they bring all the, the milk. I saw it the way they were doing all the, 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 the not before milk is resting in the trays and then the fresh milk, which comes straight well in the morning because I was there five o'clock and they mix all together and they make this unbelievable cheese, which they cut them in a half and they make this block, which is, I believe is about 30 kilograms, something like that, maybe more. And they're usually making it for 1,200, 1,500 liters at the time of milk and to, to create this one. And the cheese is going to be rested for quite a bit. After they make a couple of days, they have the cheese resting, then I put them in salt, and then they come out from the salt, and they have all this cheese for 12 months, 24 months, three years and more and more and more. It was in a such a spirit, but also they never chuck away anything. The milk with the waves, which is left of the milk, uh, the cheese, don't make an incredible, fantastic ricotta as well. And even when it's almost uh, is clear, there is nothing there, but they still got so much uh, of, uh, of vitamins inside, they give it to the pigs. Now, it's, it can only be made in five provinces, I understand, Parma, Reggio Emilia, Modena, Mantua and Bologna. It is indeed uh, five provinces of northern Italy, Parma, Reggio Emilia, Modena, Mantua, Bologna. And does that mean that in other parts of Italy, um, they, you know, they well, import the Parmigiano or do, are there... Uh, you know, cheap imitators across Italy? Well, uh, probably they are cheap imitators, but, you know, with, uh, with the Parmigiano Reggiano is, uh, is protect. So you always you have a PDO on it, which is protecting designation of origin. And then don't forget that the cheese are checked daily. And when it's ready to go out, they have to burn the cheese with this Parmigiano Reggiano log on it. Only them is a proper Parmigiano Reggiano, which come from five provinces. If you not, everything is an imitation. Okay. Now, listen, let's talk about its uses, because obviously most people um, just grated over pasta. Um, I know that uh, great aficionados and proper lovers of Italian food cringe. They they. You know, you see them frothing because when someone is cutting the cheese incorrectly. Tell us about this. When you see someone just slicing it with a knife, not using a proper Parmesan cheese knife, how do you feel? How should we be chopping? How should we be cutting Parmesan? Oh, my God. You said, you said something really good. I do suffering. I do suffering when, when they have a, a knife and a, such a large knife and they slice the Parmesan. Oh! No, you have to have a, you have to have a knife, a notch of a knife, and then you slowly press them in and you twist it. A little notch of cheese come out. And when you put them inside your mouth, 
that is completely different flavor. Parmigiano Reggiano is very, very good for grated, for almost everything. The greatest Italian invention. This is why when I cook, and I cook without a Parmigiano Reggiano, you know, some of the dish, they never, never, never taste so good. But as soon as you put a Parmigiano Reggiano, wow, off you go. Yeah, Parmigiano Reggiano grated is fantastic, but eating it with the fruit, you know, just cut a little nudge, you know, and also with the Parmigiano Reggiano, you can use everything, including the rind of a Parmigiano. Yes, because I want to ask about that, because some chefs, uh, I remember Angela Hartner talking about the fact that she puts the rinds in the freezer and keeps them for stocks and stews. Um, how do you use the rind? So if you've come to the end of your Parmesan, what does Gennaro Contaldo do with his Parma, Parmigiano Reggiano rind? Endless. Endless. I use for everything. Actually, yesterday I made a fantastic pasta fagioli, which I put out on an Instagram. So when we, I try to grate as much as I can with, uh, with the cheese and with the Parmesan, but then when you have a... The, the 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 rind of a parmigiano reggiano you can actually you keep it you put them in a the fridge and then you come out and then if you actually put them in a tray and warming up inside the ovens you can actually eat it the way it is even if you do a barbecue and you put them on top for little bits one side or the other side oh my god it's so good or chop them in small pieces make lovely pasta fagiolo or minestrone or any kind of uh, sugo you want to do uh, and soup and then last minute you know all this small pieces of a parmigiano goes inside and the brine of a parmigiano, they melt it and when you actually you grab one of them, it goes incredible, you know, dimensions and give it that flavor you want to that you, oh my, try to do it. It's only when you try, you will understand. Actually, I've done uh, the video, I had to use the rhyme of a Parmigiano, which is unbelievable. You know, in all day, you put them inside your pocket, you cut a small slice, a bit of paper in a pocket, the side of your pocket warming up the, 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 the rind of a cheese, and then on again, you pick one up, and you chew him like a lollipop. Only <laughs> <It was> sweet. <laughs> I listen. I never thought I'd get so excited about the idea of rind. Um, Gennaro Contelda, we must end it there. Thank you so much for coming on Biting Talk and talking about your life and and your love of this fantastic product, Parmigiano Reggiano. Um, it's a, such a pleasure to to speak to you and um, and all the best. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, uh, Williams. You know, keep cooking. And don't forget, when you cook it, uh, you make a lovely soup or you cut it a Parmigiano, just notch it, eat it the way it is. And then uh, use for grated and say buon appetito. Ciao. Well, from the greatest cheeses of Italy to fantastic British cheeses to Justine Murphy's amazing story uh, and Laura Rich's Wine in a Box. It's Farhad Haydari, the biting talk mixologist. Farhad, Wine in a Box, yes or no? Absolutely. Your your dear friends at Mirabal have just come out with a brand new one. And uh, our friends over at Bamford have just released one in a can. So it seems to be portable wine is, is the way to go. And I have to tell you, uh, the Lalo boxes are very super pretty. They're very attractive. And, um, and the juice is not bad either. So listen, talking of juice, have you been squeezing 
Have you squeezed something? Can you squeeze a cocktail out of your little brain for us to to round off the show before I go completely mad? I absolutely can do, and I can I can assure you that I'm not coming to you from a shoebox, Mr. Sitwell. Now, but I've got a question for you. What do you prize most, William, uh, heading into a weekend? I think a really, a really serious red wine with lunch. Uh, on, for Sunday lunch. That's what I would like. Well, I prize the idea of making cocktails that are slightly more complex, William. No, no shit, Sparhat. <laughs> exactly. Those that have a couple of more ingredients. And today's cocktail is exactly one of those. It's called, ready for it? Weekend's Prize. Let's take 43 milliliters or an ounce and a half of scotch, 25 milliliters or an ounce of green apple juice. I've got Granny Smith here. And then we'll take seven milliliters or quarter of an ounce of each of the following ingredients. Oloroso sherry, nocino, sugar syrup, and lemon juice, freshly squeezed. Shake all that in our trusty shaker, already filled with ice. As we know, it has to be derived from filtered or spring water, Mr. Sewell. And we double strain that into our already chilled coupe. Garnish with a dehydrated apple, get some cinnamon grated on top, and boom! You have another true taste of autumn in a glass. And that's what we do here, William, our topical and timely two-minute biting talk cocktail to set you up for a weekend of intoxication, frivolity, and happiness. Uh, a weekend's prize, Farhad Haydari's magical cocktail. Thank you, Farhad. Um, I think that was uh, that was quite something. And, um, I mean, the whole of the kitchen sink, I don't think there was a bottle apart from some gin that you didn't slosh into that. So um, I look forward to seeing how our listeners get on with it. Farhad, you're an absolute legend. Thank you for coming on Biting Talk. Thank you very much indeed, William. See you next time. Thank you, Farhad. A naughty and complicated concoction, if ever there was one. Now for the full recipe, seek out Mr. Farhad Heydari on Instagram. My thanks also this week to Laura Riches to Francis Gimlet, to Justine Murphy, and Gennaro Contaldo. If Farhad's cocktail is more likely to destroy than make your weekend, how about a bottle of red South African front row? It's perfect cold day comfort, and it's just £10.50 at williamshousewines.com. Biting Talk comes to you with Life Kitchens, whose Waterloo showroom is a treasure trove of creativity under those railway arches in London. And right now, what could be better than dreaming of kitchens? A new kitchen. So follow them on Instagram for inspiration or enjoy a virtual tour at life-kitchens.co.uk. Well, that's just about it for this week's episode. Please do subscribe, rate us and stave off acid reflux safe in the knowledge that Biting Talk is a front ear production. I'm William Sitwell. Goodbye.